Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. And so we um, we come to the, the, the last in a series that I entitled Sex Bomb. And it hasn't been awkward at all, has it? In any way, shape, or form. We've talked about a number of things. We've talked about what it looks like to keep it in your pants. That wasn't awkward for any of you or for me. We talked about what it would look like to um, deodorize yourself well, gentlemen, to brush your hair, clean your teeth, and hang out where the godly girls are. And that wasn't awkward in any way, shape, or form, was it? And we've talked about what it looks like to, uh, to pursue um, covenantal relationships and not transactional ones. We've talked about the difference between covenant relationships and transactional relationships. You know, transactional relationships, when you get good stuff, you stay. And if you don't get good stuff, you leave. It's the kind of relationship you have with Tesco's. And covenantal relationships, the kind of relationships we're supposed to build in this thing that God has ordained called marriage. And the framework within which he has given this gift called sex because there is trust and there is vulnerability and there is openness and there is longevity. And we talked about those things and none of those things were awkward in any way, shape or form. And uh, tonight um, I want to talk about sexuality and about homosexuality. And whatever anyone thinks about the last few weeks, it hasn't been my favorite series of sermons, to be honest. And in amongst all these non-favorite series of sermons, tonight's will be my least favorite sermon, because it's a subject which is highly controversial. And, and you will think, I think, I guess, a smorgasbord of opinions in this room as to what I should say tonight and what you're going to be offended about if I don't say this or if I say this in the wrong way or the nuance of what I say or if I use words in 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 an appropriate way. And so once again, let's have a covenant agreement for you not to be offended as much as it's possible for you not to be offended and for me not to be embarrassed as much as it's possible. And, and, and there are two rules for what I'm going to say tonight, if you can stay with me for these rules. Rule number one is, please don't participate verbally in my talk. Which isn't, I don't want debate. It's just, it's quite difficult for people's learning and listening environments if we're having a kind of stushy going on in the middle of what I say. And the second thing is, please would you try and reserve judgment about what I say until the end of what I've said. Because it might be that there will be bits that you find deeply difficult to understand, and there are bits that you absolutely love about what I say, and they may change by the end of the talk. Okay? So feel free to come back at me about a whole number of things towards the end of what we say, because I know that I'm not going to please everybody. But please wait until the very end so you've worked through what what you really, really think about this stuff. I'd love to read to you a passage of scripture, which I'm not going to preach on, but I think it forms the context of, um, of what I want to say tonight. You'll find it in Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and uh, chapter 12. 
and the first few verses. And those of you who've been around the Bible for a bit will, will have heard people teach on this a number of times, so it'll be familiar to you. The Apostle Paul writes, and he writes to a bunch of guys that he's trying to encourage around the details of living a Christ-like life. What would it look like to look like Jesus for your sake and for everyone else's sake? And he says this, therefore. In other words, he's like concluding the whole thing. He says, this is what I'm trying to say. Therefore, I urge you brothers, and you can also include sisters there, because this is written in a very patrilineal society. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means think differently. The word is metanoia. It means repent, metamorphosis, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Let's just pray together and Ask the Holy Spirit to come and give us wisdom tonight. Father, we love you. We love that you love us, and we love the clarity of what you want to say to us. We love the fact that not only have you spoken, but you speak. We love the audacious belief we have that when we open up your word, this is living and active, and it's doing something. It's going to change situations. So we ask, Father, that you would come by your spirit, and you would speak dynamically to our hearts. Change situations for us. Encourage us, bless us, challenge us and move us on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question. Why, why is this thing so big? Why is this sexuality thing so big for us? Why is this sex thing so big for us? Is it just that the, the press has blown it out of all proportions and we've got this media thing going on that tells us that if we haven't got an opinion on this or we don't feel this about people the whole time and if our sex drive is not being, uh, being used the whole time, then somehow we're deficient? Is it just the media telling it to us? Or is there some kind of internal witness that says we have a desire to be connected with others? We have a desire to love and to be loved. And I would say, yeah, absolutely. It's built within us by a heavenly Father who loves us and says, Do you know, I'm not just interested in your this-way relationship. I'm interested in your these-way relationships. And there is a deep connection between these two things because there is a deep connection between spirituality and sexuality. That's why it's so important for us. That's why it's so emotive for us. That's why it's so difficult for us. That's why we find it such a challenge in life. In the garden, way back at the beginning of time, we had this intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father and intimate relationships with with, with others, and we walked in the cool of the day, and everything was perfect. And there is a sense in which this innate thing inside of us, this desire to be connected and to be loved and to be with others, is due to the fact that we're created in the image of God who is intrinsically in relationship with Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I can't reflect the image of God on my own. No, no, I reflect the image of God when I 
when I walk with others, when I relate to others, when I have intimacy with others. There is something about relationship. And there is something about this gift of sex. Something about this gift given by God that enables that deep, intimate connection. There is something about this gift given by God that is supposed to be used according to the maker's instructions. You see, whenever we practice our sexuality outside of our spirituality, stuff gets broken, stuff gets busted, people get burnt, others get upset, and we get damaged. That's not just theory, that's the experience of life speaking. Every time we practice our sexual and physical urges outside of a covenantal relationship and in a transactional relationship, people get hurt, people get burnt, people get busted. And life's being put back together. That's how it works. And so, we can't really have a sex series however much I'd like to have a sex series, without talking about the dominant conversation that's on most people's minds and in most people's hearts. Homosexuality. I'd love to avoid it. I'd love just to hide and run away and go, I don't know, but actually this book seems to say some stuff and you already have some opinions about the stuff and you already think you know what this book says about the stuff and what I'm going to say tonight, so we really need to talk about it. This is a massive thing. It's huge, and it's volatile. And it's not just theoretical. When I could stand here tonight behind this lectern, and I could give you this because this, because this, and this is what it says, and it could be incredibly theoretical, and you could take good notes, and you could go away and say, now I can argue about homosexuality according from a biblical perspective. And it really wouldn't be a lot of use to you at all, because this is deeply personal. There are a number of you here who are gay by orientation, some of you by practice. There are a number of you here whose best friends are gay or brothers and sisters are gay. It's the way in which they express themselves and they just find it difficult because they already think they know what the church has to say about this stuff and they feel condemned by what they think the church has to say about this stuff and, and there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of hurt And there's a lot of intimidation. In fact, those three things are probably here this evening. There's confusion, and there's hurt, and there's intimidation. And they may all be in you. Or or it may be all across across the room. I read a quote just this past week from a, 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 a kind of famous American preacher who said this. Either you support gay marriage, or you're a bigot and a hater. There is no middle ground. Wow. Either you support gay marriage or you're a bigot and a hater, there is no middle ground. He went on to say this, people don't want to be insensitive, close-minded, or intolerant, and so the argument is all moving left. Really? Is that where we're at? Is that the end of the conversation? And so tonight, I, I want us to be really serious. And, and, and I said this morning, I want us to put on our big boy pants. And, and everyone looked at me and went, what are you talking about? But, but I, I want us to get really serious. And I want us to do something we rarely do. I want us to be kind of, I want us to teach through something very, very carefully. 
this evening. I don't want to talk in sound bites. And I don't want to talk in 10 second segments that can be quoted and used out of context because I want us to think seriously about this. And you might disagree with what's said tonight, that's perfectly okay. But I want us to give some rigor to the way in which we think about what God seems to say about homosexuality. Now, remembering in context that we're dealing with discipleship, we're interested in three things. We're interested in the words of Jesus. Absolutely. What does Jesus say about this stuff? What's God's play on the stuff? He's got a book out. He has some stuff to say around this stuff. We're interested in the words of Jesus. We're also interested in the works of Jesus. What did Jesus do? How did he meet with people? How did he transform people's life? And we're interested in the way of Jesus. How did he do these things? How did he carry this stuff? How did he teach this stuff? If we just are interested in the words of Jesus, we can end up incredibly bigoted. Incredibly destructive in the way we deal with people. If we're only interested in the way of Jesus, we can end up incredibly liberal. Just do whatever you want as long as you do it in love. No, no, we've got to find a way to do both. Because Jesus came, we're told, full of grace and truth. We find that in John's Gospel, chapter 1. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He had things to say from his Father that would help us live that perhaps we don't find very easy and palatable to accept, but they're truth from God. But they were all wrapped up in this DNA of love and grace and acceptance. Grace and truth. Jesus is always calibrating invitation and challenge, isn't he? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I want to be inclusive in any single way I can. And now hear the hard word. You can't stay exactly as you are. You need to change. I want you to be holy as I am holy. And so before we get into the scriptures, let me make a couple of a few things clear in context. The first thing is this. For central for this church, the authority of everything that we do is this book. By which I mean, it's not authoritative, it's the authority. It's not theoretically authoritative for the way in we practice our life, it is the authority of our life. We base what we do, what we think, what we say, and how we act upon God's word, which means by implication that culture cannot be the authority of our lives. What everyone else is doing is important, but it's not the authority that we're going to base our lives upon. Tradition equally cannot be the authority of our lives. What people have always done is important, but it's not the authority of our lives because this is the authority of our lives. Reason is really, really important, but it can't be the authority of your life because your mind is not God and your mind will let you down. And feeling certainly can't be the authority of your life. If it feels good, do it because that is a recipe for disaster because your feelings can let you down and deceive you and they can change and neither can experience be the authority of your life. These things have happened to me and therefore I believe this. No, no, no. God's got stuff to say. And the wonderful thing is this, that when this becomes the authority of your life and you stand upon it, your weight upon it, you find that all those other things, culture and tradition and feeling and reason and experience suddenly get redeemed to be useful measures of how we practice things in our world. But this is the authority. And here's the difficult thing. God's got a book out, but there's some stuff in this book that I wish was not in this book. 
How many of you can understand that? There's, there's stuff in here that I, I really wish God didn't say. Or I really wish he didn't say that in particularly that way. Or I wish he put it in a different way. Or, or I wish he made it easier for me to practice things that, that everyone would like and everyone would want. And I, could, I find it more palatable. But, but there is stuff that he says. It's hard. Second context is this. The general thought out there from the rising generation and from others, but particularly around this issue as well as other issues, is that the church of Jesus Christ is four things. We are irrelevant, we are intolerant, we are hypocritical, and we are anti-gay. Wow. That's what they think. Everyone is not here generally. That's what they think. You think. And you are. Well done, everyone. Done really well. That's good, isn't it? Wouldn't you love it? Wouldn't you love people to think that kind of stuff about you? Hey, I'm irrelevant, intolerant, hypocritical, and I'm anti-gay. I mean, if someone moves into your neighborhood three streets down... And you hear those things about, well, these people are intolerant, irrelevant, hypocritical, anti-gay. You're running around to their house, aren't you? You're knocking on the door and saying, can we be best friends? Come to my house for dinner. You'll be fun to hang out with. (laughs) That's what you think, isn't it? But that's what people think about us. That's what they think. Let me say this very carefully. I'm highly embarrassed and I'm deeply repentant of the way in which the church at large, and I guess some of us, have spoken about, thought about, and treated people who were created in the image of God. We have some serious repentance to do. And it's not just about sexuality. It's about a whole number of things as well. It's about race. It's about gender. It's about disability. The language we have used, the jokes that we have spoken about other people. But if you're here today and you're gay by orientation, whether or not you practice your sexuality, whether or not you practice your sexuality, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I want to do all I can, and we want to do all we can to distance ourselves from a section of the church that will be absolutely obsessed by their interpretation of the words of Jesus and have absolutely nothing to do with his works or his ways because Jesus doesn't hate gay people. He loves gay people. Jesus, I I can't believe for one moment, would pick it outside gay nightclubs or, or, or anywhere else with placards about people's sexuality. I, I, I don't think that's the Jesus way. Third context is this. I'm absolutely sure that stereotypes on all sides of this discussion are really unhelpful. I, personally, I'm really, really pleased that uh, you don't, when you hear about me and look at me, think... Uh, uh, oh, well, I know exactly what he's about because he's a Christian or he's a pastor. 
You know, I'm, I'm glad that you don't stereotype me and think I'm going to wear certain things and I'm going to think certain things and I'm going to behave in a certain way and I'm going to judge you for certain things and I'm just going to be that kind of person. So I'm really, really pleased that you don't stereotype me. And can I just plead that we don't create stereotypes? I'm not sure I know what a gay lifestyle is. So why would I stereotype people? <laughs> because... because I'm not sure I know what a heterosexual lifestyle is either. You know, I'm a heterosexual, but does that mean that I have the same lifestyle as Russell Brand or Madonna or, 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 or you know, Miley Cyrus or, or whoever else? <laughs> Funny, eh? <laughs> Maybe. But it doesn't mean that, does it? it doesn't, I, you know, so you can't judge me in the same way as you judge other people and not that we're judging anybody anyway. So why would I want to judge you or, or presume certain things for you because you're gay by orientation and you're going to do this or do that or I need to be worried about that or I need to be worried about these things. Tell you what, if you don't assume things about me, I won't assume things about you. Final thought. This authoritative book calls all of us to a different standard. Every single one of us. Every single person here who has any desire to follow Jesus, any desire to, 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 to look like him, any desire to represent him, calls us to a different standard. God is wanting to train us and transform us to become the people that we can be, that he wants us to be. He loves you just as you are. Isn't that cool? Yes, God. <laughs> he does. He really does. He, I don't believe I just did that. <laughs> he, he absolutely loves you. He thinks you're fantastic. The scriptures say it again and again and again. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I think you're brilliant. I, I did a good job. That's what God says. I think you're amazing. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to keep you that way. Because what he's wanting to do is conform you and transform you to the person of Jesus. He's wanting to clean you up and deal with your stuff and all the brokenness and all the things that get jaggedy and all the things that cause you grief and other people pain in life. He's going to want to smooth those things over and conform you to the person of Jesus. Whatever your stuff is, whatever your disposition is, whatever your orientation is, Whatever stuff that you have that is incompatible with him and masks the image of God in you, he's going to want to deal with it. The reason we have this is to push us towards that. The reason we're struggling with this is to encourage us to pursue him and his glory. The issue, you see, is not my physical drive. It's my spiritual development. The issue is not my physical drive. It's my spiritual development. So let's walk through the Bible relatively quickly, because that was a very, very long introduction. <laughs> Genesis 1, and 1 to 3. And there are three things that, that um, the scripture writer writes here uh, that don't directly speak into homosexuality, but have a relevance for us. Here they are. First thing that happens when, when God creates men and women and, and brings them together in a marriage relationship, we're told this, that a man, listen, and a woman, a man and a woman are to leave every other relationship and come together and become one flesh. It doesn't say a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It says a man and a woman. 
And it's interesting that only when God had made a woman did he look at both the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and say it's good. Man on his own, not good. A man and a woman together, good. That's what God says. And the third thing is this, and it's very, 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 perhaps a little bit crass and a bit physical, but only different sexes together can be fruitful and multiply. That's the command of God, be fruitful and multiply. The human race would die if it was just men or if it was just women. So God sets up this agenda. He says, look, this is, this is the way in which I'm calling you to be. Man and woman, leave. It's good when they're together and go forward, be fruitful and multiply. And then the fall comes along, and this is really helpful to, for us to understand our sexuality because all hell breaks loose, literally. And there's physical death, and there's natural disasters, and there's tensions in relationships. And what happens is we all have physical urges, every single one of us. We all have desires. Because of this fall, because of our break, the breakage of our relationship with God, we all have these desires that are not God's best for us, all of us. Whether you think you're as pure as driven so, no, 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 no. You have thoughts that you shouldn't have. You've done stuff you shouldn't have done. You've seen things you shouldn't have seen. You have desires that are, that, that are not God's best for you. Whether that's homosexual or heterosexual, these are the desires you have. So, Carl, is it in our genes? Maybe. I don't know. I could stand up here and say, well, my opinion is, but I don't know. I don't know that anyone knows. I know there are scientists who would say, well, it's definitely this, or there are theologians who say it's definitely that. I don't know. I don't know that we will ever know this side of glory, what all this stuff is about. But even if it is in your genes, even if you are predisposed to be homosexual and to practice your homosexuality, that's not an excuse to practice it. Mm. We never say, do we? You're predisposed to addiction because in your genes somewhere there is a predisposition to being addicted to alcohol or drugs or, or, or something else and your, your father was and your great-grandfather was and you were. Ah, just go for it. Do we? We don't say that. We don't say you're predisposed to it, so you just may as well go for it. We say you're predisposed to it, so we'll find a way to help you work this through because it's going to be damaging to you if you go for it. The issue is not my physical drive, but my spiritual development. Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 is a really important passage of Scripture regarding this stuff. And you know, I know that some of you are thinking, gosh, we're going through quite methodically, but actually this is really important for us to understand what God has to say. This is the first time in, in the scriptures that homosexuality is, is mentioned, and um, it's often used as a, as a proof text for people who want to be quite aggressive around this stuff, because it's in, in the, in the um, authorized version that uses the word abomination. Abomination isn't anywhere near as bad a word as we think it is. Abomination in the original language just means it's not the way things are meant to be. That's all it means. Just not the way things are meant to be. We read this. Look at Leviticus 18, verse 22. It says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. This is detestable. Which is pretty direct, isn't it, really? Don't lie with a man as one lies with a woman. 
this is detestable. And the argument goes that for, for some people, that well, that's, that's just the Old Testament. That's old school stuff. That happened way back then. There was a whole bunch of weirdy, weirdy stuff that happened in the Old Testament that we don't do to now that can't be applicable today. And, and the answer to that, I think, is, yes, there are some things in the Old Testament that are figurative and cultural. Plenty of things. There are also some things, many things, that are literal and eternal. So the question is, how do we work out whether it's figurative and temporal, contextual, cultural, or or whether it is eternal and and, and forever? Well, the only way in which I know how to do that is to look at the context. Look look around the passage of Scripture. Is everything else in the the passage of Scripture around this stuff, is that temporal? Is that cultural? And we, we, we just do those things now, so we may as well do everything else. Or is this a turn? Well, well, let's look at the context. Look at verse 21. Do you have a Bible? Scripture writer says this, Don't give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Hmm. Verse 23, Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is perversion. So, let's get interactive. How many of you think that it's an acceptable thing today to sacrifice children to gods? Nobody. Okay. How many of you think that it's an acceptable thing to sleep with an animal, whether you're a male or a female? Okay. So we think those things are forever, don't we? Should never do those things. They're really not right. It's perversion. So why do we want to take the verse in the middle of that thing and say, well, that's temporary. Everything else around it is, 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 is eternal. God says this is not his best. Turn with me to the New Testament. To 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 9 to 11. And this is the New Testament passage that deals with homosexuality. And it's, um, it's the first time that um, the Apostle Paul uses the word homosexual. He, he talks about homosexual offenders. And, and actually, he's made up a word here. Paul does this quite often um, because he just does. I think over 100 times in the New Testament, Paul invents a word. And what he does, I, I love inventing words, it's great. But what Paul does is he can't find the word that he's trying to use, and so he takes two words and puts them together and finds a word. And so he's, he's made up a word here, homosexual. And the word that he, he, he's made up um, for homosexual is taken from two words, arseno and coitus. And arseno actually just means men. And coitus means bed. So basically, he's saying men in bed. That's his word for homosexual. Men in the bed. So he says, these things, men in the bed together, not helpful. And the point of what he's saying is those who practice homosexual orientation, not God's best. Orientation, well, that's just orientation. But those who practice, and his point is this, there are categories of false IDs that many people have. He's saying everyone has a false identity before they come to know Christ. 
And here he talks about sexual deviancy and he talks about homosexuality. He says, some of you were known for that. Some of you paraded it. Some of you was just, this is who I am. This is what I'm all about. But then you came to know Jesus and he becomes the identity for you. You are in Christ. You're loved by him. Everything else is secondary and everything else is past. And some of you were these things. Otherwise, that's past for you. It's not your identity. It's not who you are. It's not who you belong to. You dealt with that. Every time homosexuality is mentioned in the New Testament, and actually, interestingly, there are only three mentions of this word, homosexual, in the New Testament. It's interesting, isn't it, how we we make it such a huge issue and churches are falling out all over the place about it and and, and divide three mentions in the whole of the New Testament of this word homosexuality. And every time homosexuality is mentioned, it's next to a bunch of other things that are all equal to it. So what Paul is saying again and again and again is some of you were, were, were enjoying extramarital sex. Some of you were enjoying gay sex. Some of you are greedy. Some of you are bigots. Some of you are judges. Some of you are gluttons. Some of you are heavy on judgment. All of us came to Christ and that stuff gets dealt with. It's all equal. Let's not put this in a corner and that in a different corner and say, oh, you know, be very, very careful about that. Every single one of us. Some of you sit and listen to the scriptures being read and hear the preacher talk about generosity and giving and not hoarding stuff, but the greedy spirit within you means you never give anything to anybody. You don't share with other people. You don't give to, 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 to the work of Christ here. Paul said, that's not your identity anymore. All of us. God loves you wherever you are. But he has a different and beautiful place that you can be. So Romans 1, verse 26 to 27. And this is probably people's favorite proof text for looking at homosexuality. And here's the thing, there are many newer translations that try to wash out the obvious meanings of these verses. And some of them try to remove that word unnatural because it sounds so unpleasant. But it's there for a reason it's unnatural because there are parts that aren't designed to fit in other places and it's just unnatural some of the practices that God is talking about here. And some people say that this is about temple prostitution and it's not really about normal homosexual practice. No, it's not about temple prostitution because temple worship is not the agenda for the Roman Christians. It's the agenda perhaps for the Ephesian Christians so he's not talking about that. This is pretty clear. But once again, we need to read this stuff in full context. Let me read it to you just so that we're clear about what we're saying. Verse 26 and 27. Because of this, he's talking about 
God's wrath against humanity because people have, have put God in the rearview mirror and they've, they've driven away from God and his purposes and they've said, God, we can do life without you. Thank you very much. And therefore he says this, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were aflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with one other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Sounds really hard. But then we read this. They have been filled with every... This is everyone, all of us. All of us who reject God. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Hello. Like all this stuff going on. What, what Paul is saying is this. When people, when society, when you and I reject God and his purposes and his framework, when we say, God, we can do life without you, thank you very much. We don't need your commandments. We can do what we want in life. All this stuff happens to us that includes our sexual perversion, that includes us behaving in ways we shouldn't behave, that includes us thinking we can handle life on our own, but it also includes all this other stuff about greed and malice and envy and wanting stuff that we shouldn't have and material materialism and consumerism and hedonism will do whatever we want and disobeying your parents. When was the last time that we thought the sin of disobeying your parents was the same as the sin of having relations sexually outside of a marriage relationship? That's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's sin, is sin, is sin. Falling short of my glory is falling short of my glory is falling short of my glory. And he says something really, really interesting at the end of this statement. He says, when you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself. When you practice judging someone else, you need to recognize the sin that's in your heart. When you say, oh, look at the way in which you're behaving, you can't be part of what I'm doing because of that... At the very moment you do that, you're judging someone, which is a sin that is equal to the stuff that you're condemning someone else for. And Jesus says, doesn't he? If you want to look at the speck in someone else's eye, will you take the log out of your eye? And the reason he says that, once again, because it's Jesus. He's not in the business of, of heavy condemnation. He says it because he wants you to help someone take the speck out of their eye. But he says, you've got to deal with your stuff first. And it's not that I don't want you to have an opinion about this stuff. I need you to have an opinion about this stuff. Because this is important stuff for me. But I don't want you to have an opinion with an air of superiority. My sin is worse than your sin. We are all sinners in desperately need of the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. All of us have our predisposition to some sin or another sin. Wow. So when it comes to homosexuality, what are the common smoke screens kind of obliterate our, our, our thinking and, and, and confuse us? The first thing is this. Some people say, gay sex is an abomination, so we shouldn't welcome gay people into our community. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. 
We should be incredibly welcoming to gay people. In fact, we should be most welcoming to gay people. Just as welcoming as we are to people who don't give to the life of the church, who gossip, who exercise narcissistic tendencies, who have a bit of an eating issue, who are overweight, who, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever the issue that you currently carry, whatever the thing that you're struggling with, whatever the difficulty that you have, we all have them. We have to be welcoming in every single way. Do you know my prayer, weird as it may seem, is that this becomes the premier gathering of people who are gay by orientation in the city of Edinburgh. That's what I want to see happening. I want to see this place full of people dealing with their stuff. And knowing that it's a welcoming community where we can talk about these things, where we may disagree about these things, but we're all on a journey towards God because our sexuality is connected to our spirituality and we're all seeking to get back to the garden. Does that make any sense? That's what I want us to be doing. That's how I want us to be loving people. These guys can serve in our church, can worship with us in our church. Where do we get the idea that one sin is worse or better than another sin? Will we have leaders in our church who are practicing their homosexual orientation? No. Ooh. Why? Not because of their practice, primarily, but because of the authority. Because this book says stuff that we've just unpacked, that if you aren't willing to come under the authority of it, you can't model and lead within this community. Just in the same way, as if someone who hasn't been willing to deal with their particular thing will also not lead in our church. Which doesn't mean that the leaders in our church are whiter than white. We're all broken people struggling with stuff. But each one of us are desperate to stand on the truth of this word, to be accountable to the truth of this word, and to continue to walk through our stuff. First smoke screen. Second smoke screen is this. They're reverses against homosexuality, but they're cultural. It's all cultural stuff. No. Nonsense. When, when something is said once in the scriptures, or twice maybe, then we might get away with saying it's cultural. Look at the background, look at the context, it's cultural. But when something is said as many times as God says stuff about homosexual practice... And it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. It's in the Greek and it's in the Hebrew. It's in a whole variety of cultures and contexts and a whole variety of times. Then we have to say that God has said an eternal thing. Third smokescreen. Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. So we should just accept it. Absolutely true. Jesus never in any of his teachings says anything about homosexuality directly. Equally, Jesus in none of his teachings says anything about paedophilia, pornography, supporting your hometown football team, or anything else. There's a stack of things he doesn't say anything about. Does his silence mean that we should just practice whatever we want to practice? No, 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 no. Jesus says, doesn't he? I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Now the law he knows talks again and again and again about the way in which we practice relationships with one another. You better bet that if God wanted to change some stuff and said, that's not in anymore, that Jesus would have said something about it. 
The final thought, and I reckon this is a big one for us. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Anyone think like that? I just don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't, you know, is this the same stuff as the idiots who thought that slavery was a good thing? Is this exactly this? No, no, I don't think it is. I, I can't find in the study that I've done any ancient civilization which was based on the acceptance of homosexual practice that was healthy and growing and lasted. Equally and more importantly, I am more concerned, I am more concerned to be on the right side of this authority than on the wrong side of history. Wow, I warned you this would be intense. I don't want you to be uninformed. You know, I thought, I thought about doing something interesting. I thought about getting some stories. I've got some friends who I thought I could interview about their sexuality and how they're practicing their sexuality. But I was really, really concerned about the danger of the single story. The single story defining what we thought. So I get someone up here who says, you know, I was gay, met with Jesus. That was the way I felt about myself. He changed stuff, and now I'm okay, and I'm doing And it has a real potential for you to think that's what we think about this stuff. So I'd love to tell you a whole number of stories, and we haven't got a whole stack of time, but I'll tell you about Peter. Peter was the guy um, who discipled me as a teenager, who helped me grow in my relationship with Jesus. Peter loved Jesus and was gay by orientation. Just the way he was. When when Peter finally worked this out and came out and said, I'm gay, everyone went, yeah. We never would have articulated, but we sort of knew something was going on. Peter loves Jesus. Peter's been a pastor of a church. Peter Peter now serves the Lord in, in Japan. And Peter lives as a celibate man. He wrestles with this stuff. Let me tell you about Andrew. Andrew was a friend of mine. He was one of my elders in the church that I led in, in Leeds. And he was at university and, and gay by, by orientation and by practice. And, and, and then he met Jesus. And, and Jesus did something with him and in him. And, and, and it was a radical change that came about. And he, he, he met his girlfriend and then his wife. And now they're married and they have three kids. And they serve the Lord in, in New Zealand. I'd love to tell you about the brave men that I know who are connected to this church. They're not all part of this church, but they're connected to this church. And they have a a gathering, I think it's uh, fortnightly, to pray together because they all struggle with same-sex attraction. And they're trying desperately to walk this thing through. And some of them are practicing that, and some of them are struggling with it, and some of them are trying to be celibate. and They're just trying to work this thing out together. And they find it deeply, deeply difficult. I'd love to tell you the story of a, of a guy I know who, who's really deeply attracted to Jesus and he's really deeply attracted to other men. And he's really deeply unattracted to church. Because he just feels condemned the whole time. And I wish I could tell you a success story, but he just stays away as much as he possibly can. I'd love to tell you the story of a girl who was part of this community who, um, who used to bring her, her, her friend with her to this community and we had, they, they were part of a small group and, I, and we, we, we loved having them and I think I handled the whole thing really, really badly because I hadn't worked it through and I didn't know what to do and how do we include people and, 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 and help them realize how do we do the grace and truth thing and, how, uh, and she's not part of this community anymore and I feel shame for that. And I find it really, really difficult.
Let me make this very, very, very clear to you. Gay or straight, orientation or practice, you are very, very, very welcome here. God loves you, and so will we. We will welcome you, and we will serve with you, and we will worship with you, and we will grow together, and we'll be on a journey together. See, God is drawing us, not primarily to indulge our physical drive, but to pursue our spiritual calling. That's what he's about. And this is hard for us, I know. It's hard for some of us to hear because some of us are so broken and it's been so painful. And so Jesus came. A single man. A single man. Knowing all the pain that we have and all the difficulties we have and all the sufferings we have. And he set his face towards a cross. And he paid for all our sin and all our abominations, all our abominations, all our stuff. And he died to bridge the unbridgeable gap. And he died to forgive the unforgivable stuff. And he died to bring healing and wholeness and restoration. And he died so that you and I could find our way back to God so that we might pursue him. And it's done. It's dealt with. It's finished. And all of our stuff and all of our temptations and all of our difficulties, if we hand them over to him, they just remain there as reminders of the fact that it's done and that he's dealing with it and he's calling us on into a relationship with him. I don't know where you stand. And I don't know where your stuff is. I don't know what needs to be dealt with. I don't know what needs to be forgiven. I don't know what needs to be restored, and I don't know what needs to be healed. But let me try a few things just before we close and worship together and see what God wants to do with each one of us. I think there are some of us here who need to ask God for forgiveness. I need to get right with him because of our attitudes towards people and things that we have said and the things that we have spoken and the way that we have acted. Because it hasn't glorified God and it's hurt people created in the image of God and it's, it's not God's best. And we find it difficult to move on until we deal with that stuff. And so I'm going to give us an opportunity in just a moment to stand and deal with some of that stuff. Because it will just get us stuck until we move on from it. And the second thing I, I think, and I, I gave this challenge uh, this morning, and not sure how well it went down really, but I, I called for um, a sex fast. Now, I know that's very, you know, you'd, you'd expect that from a pastor, really. No sex. <laughs> but the reason I did it was, was, was really important. I, w- I would love to ask if anyone would love to join me to fast from sex for a week. Some of you thinking, well, it's not going to apply to me. Yes, it probably does. Those of you who are married, wonder if you would consider fasting from sex for a week. Those of you who are not married and having sex, I wonder if you consider fasting from sex for a week. Those of you who are single, I wonder if you would consider fasting from sex with yourself for a week. And here's the reason. Because it's not primarily about satisfying your physical urge. 
It's about your developing spiritual relationship. And I'd love you to consider every single time you want to have sex. Now, let me clarify this. Before you commit to this, you probably need to talk to the person that you have sex with. <laughs> Just thinking this through, okay? Every single time, I would love, love you to spend that time in prayer. God, you know, you've given us this good thing, and, and after a week, we get to go for it. Well, those of you who are married, <laughs> that was not carte blanche for everybody else. You get to go for it. Bring on the raisins, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> By the way, raisins don't work. That was just what they thought, okay? Trust me. Let's not do this. I had, someone, I had a conversation with someone this morning when I was talking about this. They were clarifying, when does the sex fast start? Can it start on Monday morning? <laughs> I said yes. But this is for that. This is for that. And you see, it's easy for me as a, as, as a, a happily married guy with four kids to say, well, you know, it's just God's way, you know, and if, if, if your orientation is this, then you have to suck it up and get on with. And I know it's a little thing, but, but, but what if I, I just was wanting to stand with you for a week and say, you know what? Let's, let's just do this. Let's pursue God together. And the third thing is this. Some of you guys are just really broken and hurt. We've talked over the past three weeks, and you've not agreed with everything I've said, but there are some things that have really touched a chord and spoken to you, and you I, I just really need to be healed. I really need forgiven. I really need restored. I really need someone just to pray for me because there's stuff in me that got broken and got hurt because of things I did or things that were done to me or things that were said over me. I just need restored. And the Father is here this evening, and he loves to do that. He loves to restore, and he loves to heal, and he loves to forgive. So the band are going to come up, and I'm just going to invite you. If you would love, if you would like to repent, I'm standing. If you would like to repent for some of the ways that you have thought and talked and spoken and acted towards people created in the image of God that you deeply regret and you want to repent for, I'd love to lead you in a prayer of repentance and forgiveness. So would you stand with me if you're up for that? Think of the, um, I think of the football dressing room. Think of the words we used, the jokes we used, the things we said. Okay. I'd love to lead you in prayer. Maybe in your heart you just pray this prayer after me. Father, I ask your forgiveness. I ask your forgiveness for the way in which I have talked and thought about people created in your image. Would you forgive me? And would you help me to see people the way you see people? To love people the way you love people? And to treat people the way in which you would have me treat them? Would you give me a fresh love and a fresh insight? I ask your forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now here's the thing. The Lord says, you're free and you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. That's his word. Let's everyone stand, shall we?